Welcome everybody to the Michigan State University College of Osteopathic Medicine statewide campus system, the MedEd Transformation Podcast. happy to be joined today by Dr. Jeremy Purcell, who is an accomplished cognitive neuroscience researcher with over 15 years of experience. Jeremy is currently employed as a faculty research scientist at the Maryland Neuroimaging Center and is, an affiliated, and is affiliated with both the Cognitive Science Department at John Hopkins University and the Psychology Department at the University of Maryland. Uh, Jeremy has extensive active learning teaching experience of cognitive neuroscience, both at John Hopkins and uh, to the Tibetan monastics in India. Jeremy joined us uh, in April for an e-forum, which was very well received, a lot of great information, and I invited Jeremy back to have a podcast with me to talk a little bit more about uh, the Transforming Curriculum to Active Learning. So Jeremy, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, and if you wanna give a little bit more of an overview of uh, how you came into the active learning world and what you've done with curriculum, and then we'll go ahead and, and get started with some questions. Oh, great, yeah, thank you for the introduction and thank you for having me. Uh, so I can kind of introduce um, my kind of background and how I got into doing active learning. Uh, it's all started when I was at Johns Hopkins University as a postdoc, working with a cognitive science researcher there who had a, a cognitive neuroscience course that she had been teaching for many years in the traditional format of lecture style. And she was noticing that every year, the reviews and input and feedback seemed to be getting incrementally worse and worse. Like the students were perceiving that course in a negative way. And so she, you know, decided to kind of change things up. And uh, she had heard about um, the flipped classroom approach, uh, active learning. Um, and when I say she, this is Dr. Brenda Rapp. Uh, who at the time was chair of the cognitive science department at Johns Hopkins University. And so uh, I, so she kind of initiated and prompted um, this uh, flipping of the cognitive uh, neuroscience course at Johns Hopkins. And it was a huge amount of effort because we didn't really have a lot of material to start with. So we had to build a lot of the material um, from the ground up. And there was two major components to this. One was uh, taking all the lectures uh, for you know, the didactic material and recording them and having them pre-recorded so students can go and access them on their own time. The other component was to develop active learning sessions where these are smaller group sessions where you would have a classroom of say 20 to 25 students and you would have activities that they would work on 
uh, goal-directed activities that they would work on uh, in class. And the, the instructor, and so there would be for those sessions, you would need multiple different instructors in multiple different classrooms teaching at the same time, the same material, having the students go through the same activities. And so the only real interaction, so the inter interactions between the students and the instructors were during these active learning sessions uh, for the most part. Um, there were also review sessions that the students could go to to review the didactic material, but those were uh, really only before the exams. So, so that was the, the, the kind of the transition. And uh, I participated in developing the active learning sessions and the active learning materials. And so because I was working with Dr. Rapp, I kind of you know, uh, participated in this and uh, found it a great experience. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, and so I developed a few of the active learning sessions and taught the class for uh, a few years. And every year we would incrementally change and improve on the active learning uh, materials. And so some examples of sessions that I developed are um, you know, using software to navigate the brain, to identify different brain regions, to understand how different structures are related to each other, uh, and to understand standard coordinate systems for how to navigate in three dimensions. Uh, and um, another one where I had uh, students draw brain lesions in stroke patients so they could identify what parts of the brain were damaged and relate those uh, areas of lesion to uh, cognitive deficits. Uh, and so that's one that the students I think really enjoyed. Uh, another one where we set up a debate between different, you know, split the classroom up. And so I had groups of students debate each other on whether neuroimaging should be used in the courtroom. Uh, and so that was a very, um, very popular active learning session. Um, but Jeremy, and, with, with those two examples that you gave, it sounds like the facilitation of that would be somewhat different uh, versus a debate versus teaching uh, students about the uh, lesions in the brain and, and direction of the conversation. Can you talk a little bit about these different models of active learning and facilitation and how they're created? Yes, yeah, so it, it wasn't... Um... So one idea going in was to have a variety of different uh, learning experiences. So one approach would be like with the, the you know, say the lesion drawing uh, exercise. That was a very script driven approach where there was a detailed plan uh, and really between in five minute increments, there was a plan about what should be going on in the classroom. You know, we should introduce the software that should take five minutes. Within 10 minutes, the students should be drawing their own brain lesions on the brain. And, you know, by this time they should be done. And then, and so the class proceeded in a very scripted way. And as over, you know, the, uh, a few years, it became more and more refined. So I could predict exactly um, 
you know, when, what was going to happen next. And if the classroom, if that particular class was slow or something like that, I knew when to cut it off and just move on. And so it was a very, so this was necessary so that in this case, five different instructors teaching at the same time in five different classrooms could have a very similar scripted, scripted active learning class. So the other, so that's a very, and, and that is, a lot of the classes were like that. But as you point out, the debate was actually quite different. You couldn't, you had a, a rough script, but that particular class went in many different directions based on a lot of factors such as, you know, not the least of which is the enthusiasm of the students and how much they're really into it. Some of the students were really into the topic and just found it fascinating, the whole concept of doing a debate. Um, and so, you know, I had one, I remember one student came up to be after the class and she was an engineer major and she just did an amazing job and was very good and very articulate, able to um, posit very clear arguments. And she came up to me afterwards saying that she really enjoyed it. And she, uh, she, had, she didn't know that she enjoyed this way of kind of uh, debating uh, topics and thinking of arguments on, on both sides and trying to um, you know, uh, uh, identify, come to a common ground and identify some, some deeper truths. She really enjoyed that format. She had never experienced before because she's sitting in a lot of engineering classes. So that was a very rewarding feedback about that particular course. The key to it was that I needed to sit and think about every argument beforehand. And so in preparation for it, I sat and debated myself and came up with arguments pro and con and tried to, in a way, outthink the students. And for the first class, I really, I, I was fairly successful. So I was able to, when students were stuck and some students just couldn't think of arguments, pro or con, I was able to, you know, kind of give them some, uh, you know, lead them in a certain direction. And so this was, you know, uh, it, it was a more difficult class to administer because it required me to be, to essentially have a cheat sheet, um, you know, of possible questions and possible arguments that could be relevant to that particular class. And so not all arguments were used in every class. And so it was a bit of a, I had this kind of, uh, this resource, this cheat sheet, so to speak, that I could use and all the other instructors could use. So it was a little bit more free form, but also arguably a little bit more, you know, interesting and a little bit more active. Um, and one key aspect to that class is that for any student that actually pointed out that I, they were, um, pointing out an argument that I hadn't thought of, I tried to give them feedback that that was actually a, a good thing and that, you know, uh, you know, this, you know, just tell them I hadn't really thought of that. That's a good point. And the students would often beam and be very pleased that they could think outthink the, the instructor. So it became the students were trying to almost compete to see if they could, you know, outthink me. Um, and I found it a very rewarding uh, knowing that they were you know, thinking along those lines. And uh, I think it made them more engaged. Um, and so that was, uh, so it was admittedly difficult, but a very rewarding experience. It, it sounds like it. I 
we uh, we attempted to put on a, a debate a few years ago um, with evidence-based medicine and things like that. And the students kind of grumbled at first of preparing further debates, but then once they presented them, uh, they really they really enjoyed it. Yeah, so I found, so the anecdote about the student coming up to me after the class was um, particularly rewarding because it, it, it emphasized or um, highlighted the fact that some of these students just don't have different learning experiences. And so they don't know if they're, say, particularly good at some, some way of learning and engaging with the material. And so by design, we tried a variety of things, a variety of approaches um, with the idea that, although with the idea that we're not necessarily trying to find the best way for active learning that say works on average with the most people, but works, but find one, you know, at least one active learning session would be the favorite of any given student and that it would tap into how they learn the best. Um, and hopefully they learn more about how they learn and how they think. Um, and so that was the approach we took. There might be different, you know, approaches to kind of active learning where say you have the same type of active learning every session, um, but we, we wanted to have a, a bit more variety. Um, and I, you know, some students, might, their, their least favorite class might be the debate, um, but that's what you get when you, you know, have this variety of different learning sessions. So. Yeah, you, you, talk, you talk about the variety of different types of active learning and kind of mixing it up. I've heard from faculty, and even if I reflect on some of the own, my own active learning that I was a participant in uh, throughout my schooling, was the asking of questions until they don't know something, or what some faculty refer to as, I pimp the students, or I pimp the learner until they don't know something, and then I know what to teach them. Can we talk a little bit about that and how, where that actually fits into active learning? Because I think that there's different approaches or different thoughts regarding that style of teaching. Yeah, so I, so I haven't, um, so yeah, I've heard that term uh, more in kind of the medical uh, field in, in kind of the classes that I've taught and what I've seen um, and what actually the way I think of it is that it's, it's always about, um, in the end, you have a goal that you want to teach. You have some, some concept that you want to teach. And you always, uh, you know, I think if the students already know that information, then, you know, you, of course, can ask them questions and they'll, they'll get, you, know, you can always kind of teach them a little bit more advanced. And so you always have further goals to, to proceed. But I think um, students can really detect where, a where, where an instructor is going. And so I think there's a fine line between asking questions that this, you know, that the kind of the students are not sure if they're just being tested for the sake of being tested, or they're being asked questions that lead them towards a, kind of a, a deeper conceptual understanding. And so it's often you know, I think the best approach is for if the students know why they're being asked questions. Uh, and so this is more of, you know, kind of like the Socratic method where you ask questions um, and have them think logically and are led towards a particular conceptual goal. And this is different from kind of just asking students to like, hey, do you know this, you know, uh, esoteric fact 
or that or something like that. And I think students can kind of, I, I think one overarching idea is that having kind of forging a, a good bond with the students is important so that they know what you were trying to do. So some of the students might not like some of the active learning sessions, but they know that I'm trying to come up with something that's interesting and engaging and with the goal of them learning a concept. Some of that, sometimes this didn't come off because the students, their expectations were not, um, were different than what uh, you know, I had anticipated. For instance, if they don't feel like they're being measured on active learning, then they will uh, not perform as well because they often students perform in relation to what they're being measured on. And so they, their expectations are based, well, if I'm not gonna be tested on this, then it's not important. And that's a very difficult concept with you know, active learning. Um, and I think it's important for, as you say, the kind of leading questions, if they, don't, if, they, if they think that these questions are leading them towards a deeper concept and, and the goal is to help them understand, then I think that that's a very productive way and very engaging way to do it. But if they feel like they're just being tested so that they can be measured against their peers and, and judged in a way, then I think it's not as necessarily productive. And that's up to the instructor to kind of build that relationship and set the expectations that this is always the goal is for them to learn more, not for them to be kind of judged or you know, measured ad adversely against their peers. Um, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I've seen in some cases where active learning is added more as a supplement to the class rather than part of the class. And so from what I'm hearing you saying is have it part of the class, have them evaluated on their test or evaluation system on the components from the active learning session that they should have learned during that session. Yeah, I mean, I this is maybe more my personal philosophy about you know active learning versus the more traditional approach is that the more an instructor knows of the material, um, if they know it backwards and forwards and they know how, what the students know. And so they're very informed about the, the level of the students and they're knowledgeable where the students mess, you know, kind of get stuck and where they have conceptual, you know, where the conceptual difficulties are. Um, I think naturally, you know, teaching becomes more active. The instructor doesn't have to rely on slides. They don't have to rely on, uh, you know, just it, teaching factual information. They can provide a bigger picture and engage the students in kind of this more dialogue. And I think it's difficult to engage via dialogue, uh, and it requires, you know, a lot of planning if you aren't super knowledgeable of the material. But you know. You know, if you do it one year and it's subsequent years, you learn a ton from the students about where the conceptual difficulties are. And so you know exactly what questions to ask to lead the students towards a higher conceptual understanding. So um, I, I do think things naturally become active based on if, if the instructor has, I think, a, 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 the right frame of mind. Um, and the, the details about the specific kind of, you can have more fancier, more um, diverse types of active learning. Uh, and that's, as I kind of mentioned a few of the examples, um, but in the end, 
uh, you know, the active part of it, I think, has to do with the instructor being able to let the students struggle in front of them and then knowing when to hold their hand and when to kind of uh, let back and, 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 you know, let them take their first steps. Uh, and I think that that's, um, that's my general approach to kind of and way of thinking about active learning. And so this isn't something that needs to be a big overhaul of your whatever you're trying to teach. If you're, if you're teaching in the more traditional approach, you can just incrementally add in more active engagement where you know this concept is difficult. And so you can ask leading questions to get the students to kind of have these aha moments and, and have these moments where they understand something a little bit more deeper. Jeremy, I love that approach about asking the students uh, questions to, to get them for a deeper understanding. But I think one of the biggest fear for faculty, even the faculty that are experts or, or very knowledgeable in a specific area, when you transition to the facilitating of, learner, of learning compared to lecturing, is that fear of being asked a question that we don't know the answer to. So what is the best way to handle those types of questions? And, and how to calm faculty's uh, anxiety about uh, being faced with questions we may not know the answer to. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, you know, my personal opinion, but um, I mean, I think a bigger fear should be that students think you are pretending to be knowledgeable. You know, I think students can really pick up, um, I mean, we're, a lot of us, you know, we're, we're you know, adults were a little detached from having these kind of classroom experiences like when we were undergrads. Um, but a lot, we could tell which instructors seem to know the material and which instructors are seeming to fake it. And I don't think it, it's, it's not, and those instructors which, which were new, but were trying really hard. And so I, I think um, students have a lot of respect for, for instructors that are new, but you know, enthusiastic and they don't know everything. And um, you know, you can ask them a question, then they will admit they don't know it and be thankful for a question that they didn't think of yet. And that's been my approach. Um, definitely, for example, for the um, uh, debate that I mentioned that came up where I was able to highlight some, to some students that they thought of something I hadn't thought of before, and it was awesome for them to do that. Um, so in a word, I would say embrace it. Embrace the fact that you don't know something and reward the students. I think the benefits of rewarding students for pointing out um, or challenging you is, is much better than damage to one's ego. But in one particular, in another set of uh, uh, classes, that we, active classes that we set up, we had students design their own experiments and design their own projects. It was even more free form where by definition, we're coming up with, you know, the students are bringing new ideas constantly. And so it, it required a lot of um, kind of openness and it was a good practice and kind of critically evaluating where, what, how the students were thinking, but being open to their new ideas. And I think it got the students excited. If there was some inclination that I thought what they were thinking was a new and awesome idea, um, a lot of the students would just start beaming. And I think it, you can't put a price on that type of motivation. Uh, where they, it, it just parts, it, it, it makes them part of the, 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 the learning kind of endeavor, as opposed to just this, it just is, makes them more active by default. If they think that they can know something the teacher doesn't know, ask a question the teacher doesn't, doesn't know the answer to, 
Um, so I think it's a positive thing. I think it just requires some exercise and training oneself not to be too, um, not try to be this know-all. Um, and I think, you know, if an instructor doesn't, you know, you need to have some base knowledge, of course, but and need to be prepared. But I think students are pretty, pretty open and, and pretty okay with not knowing, instructors not knowing everything. I just love, I love the way that you speak to how the learners really enjoyed this and that they can, they can see how much effort the, the faculty are putting into things. And the way it sounds like the first time that you guys switched to active learning, it, it was, you know, pie in the sky, perfect. But we all know, and in discussions that I've had with you, we know that that's not always the case. And you said that you try something one year, you modify it for the next year. But if, if things aren't going well, or when you make a change um, and it's not perfect or receives neg negative feedback, we often want to resort to kind of that status quo, how we did it before, because we knew that that worked and whatnot. What prevented you guys from just going back to the status quo? Yeah, it was, so there was some, you know, we did have these kind of existential uh, you know, not quite crisis, but dilemma at, after the first um, year, because we did find that um, although the students were getting better, um, they were doing, performing better on the exams and using kind of even some of the same questions from previous years or, or equivalent questions. And so we had, you know, a, a rigorous way, we had some data to show that they were getting better. But uh, overall, the approval rating was relatively low, definitely lower than expected. So the students didn't seem to be enjoying it as much. Uh, and so there was this, this point at which, you know, should we proceed? Because it, it you know, and in, in simply put, it was more expensive. And so there was pressure on the university not to continue this format uh, for financial reasons, because we had to pay an additional set of instructors, five instructors um, for this course. So, uh, you know, this prompted us kind of can look, delve into the literature and find out that this was actually not uncommon for the performance to be relatively better for active learning, but the um, actual reviews and perceptions from the students um, to be, you know, somewhat lower you know, than the traditional approach. And this was definitely true for, you know, students that, that were kind of right, that, you know, for which active learning was uniquely new uh, and hadn't really had it before. And all of our students, this was their first experience with active learning. So they didn't, this was a very new experience. And a lot of their perceptions was, were that this was a ton of work. And al although very interesting, it just, didn't seem like it was getting them towards their goal of doing well on the exam, even though they did do better on the exams um, on average. So it was a very, you know, so we had these moments, um, but we decided to, you know, because the students were doing better and because we had uh, a lot of evidence, you know, anecdotal evidence that some of the students just really enjoyed it. And really the, the level of enthusiasm was, um, you know, palpable. Like they just, you could see them beaming in class. So you can see these aha moments. You can see these, these moments where they seem to be really learning and 
learning more about themselves in terms of what uh, educational experiences they enjoy. So, you know, we had definitely some motivation to continue um, this approach. And it, you know, there was a bit of fighting and, and, you know, a bit of kind of having to present data showing it was, um, it was worthwhile um, in order to continue the funding for this course. But it was, um, you know, based on at least the personal experiences, it was, it was a way more rewarding, at, you know, instructional experience. So I think it's, um, the, you know, it was important to not ignore the positive feedback that we're getting. <laughs> Um, definitely from the, just the verbal kind of these, uh, these you know, uh, anecdotal interactions with the students. Um, I, you know, I think it was a very, you know, it was very important to kind of keep those things in mind and not be completely down by students who sometimes just really didn't like it and they really wanted to just sit and, you know, uh, study the material at home or in the way that they, they think that they were learning the best. Um, so, but based on the feedback, we did, it did get better over the years. And so, you know, this was back in what, 2016 when we started. So it did get better in, in the sense we tried to focus things in ways that were, um, you know, the students, uh, you, know, you know, for those students who didn't like the active learning uh, approach. So, you know, we, we had other ways for them to engage. Um, so they might not like any of the active learning sessions that were developed for with these scripts, with the debates, with these projects that they had to design. But we had, um, but one thing that they did like um, that we added later on was these kind of um, kind of wrap up sessions, these sessions where they would get just, they could just sit and ask the instructor questions, anything they want. And so it was, you know, the instructor had leading questions but they really could just sit and kind of, you know, have these, these dialogues with the instructor. And those were, I think, very relatively popular um, and fruitful types of sessions. And so this was in addition to um, the kind of active learning sessions that we, we developed and they were optional. So, you know, having additional instructor-student interactions was a way to mitigate the negative um, kind of perceptions of the course. So that's one approach. I, I would agree. So some of those sessions where the, the students can just have dialogue with the faculty have been well received um, in different arenas that, that I've seen it employed. So um, I can attest to that as well. One changing uh, uh, topics for just a moment. Um, we, we see with curriculum and especially something like uh, the medical school, that we often are bridging content from one course to the other. Uh, every course, every semester is the building block uh, for the next uh, course. Um, how do you, you propose to reinforce what was previously taught without having that need or desire to reteach it? Especially when you're bringing like five facilitators that have different levels of expertise in different areas to facilitate this active learning. How do you kind of mitigate that need or desire for them to want to share their knowledge more in that lecture type format um, with the students? Yeah, so I haven't, um, you know, dealt as much with kind of a, a course that 
bridges from you know one semester to another and there is kind of this continuity the the course that i was you know this course i'm referring to is you know there you needed some background information but most of the information was relatively it was taught you know within the within the course itself um and so it's it's kind of and so if i were to kind of have this con continuity across two semesters if i were to teach a part two of this course uh, and continue to have even more advanced active learning sessions you know i think it would be a wonderful first or first and second kind of, um, uh, extra uh, first and second kind of active learning class to have the students present on what they learned in the previous semester and so have them have the students kind of you know, teach the other students, give some sort of review uh, on what they learned. And one can go into details about how to implement this, but I think it's uh, a, an interesting idea that even throughout the semester, you can have different groups of students kind of teach a topic from the previous semester as kind of, um, you know, uh, you know a, a short section of each uh, of the kind of active learning sessions and just have, incorporate that into it. I think assume you know the students should know the information at that point and having them teach it or reteach it can be a very um kind of important thing for them to do kind of really solidify the concepts and have the other students kind of review the concepts as well so i think that that's one approach that i think would be i would definitely incorporate um in some way i would have to kind of work out the details about how to make that you know the um, optimally active um but yeah so th that's that's you know it, it's kind of it's difficult otherwise because you know you could as you say kind of have leading questions to figure out what the students don't know uh but it's you know kind of use the socratic method to have just more kind of active kind of in dialogues to get them to kind of restate the ideas um and you know in the end no matter how you do it just getting the students to start to try to 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 actually articulate what they learned, I think is a valuable um, thing to do at the start of any course. And then with COVID, I'm sure that has impacted the active learning activities, the debates, um, the small group uh, type activities. How do you propose uh, with the current environment that we're in to continue to promote active learning or, and how to do that? Yeah, so it's become a more recent push, um, definitely in the literature to try to, you know, over the past year to, you know, discuss, you know, having flipped classrooms, but all online where you have, say, pre-recorded lectures, but then you also have these active sessions uh, over Zoom. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I did after the pandemic started was to take some of the active learning sessions I developed and put them into video format. So I set up these tutorials where a student could just go to YouTube and watch them and then go through essentially this active learning session. And really, you know, anybody could, anybody in the world could log in and to these YouTube videos and work on this material. But they were designed so that an instructor could use them to augment their specific kind of active learning sessions. Uh, so the materials are, you know, walk through how to do this or that, 
but they don't specifically say what the, the end goal is. That's upon the instructor to set up the worksheets and design the actual goals of the active learning session. And so I intentionally did this so that uh, instructors from different universities, different institutions could use this material uh, to, to meet their specific goals. Uh, so, and these materials have already been used and have, um, you know, by uh, instructors at different universities and, you know, there's a variety of different preferences. And so I think having materials that, uh, you know, um, available for instructors to use is, a, a, you know, that are more active where they can say download software, work with it in, in this or that way, I think is a very um, positive thing. Uh, the other thing that seems to be um, very positive is uh, actually these Zoom kind of small session dialogues with instructors and some of the literature supports what I just mentioned about these kind of, you know, like wrap up sessions or sessions where the, the instructor can just sit and kind of, uh, you know, uh, summarize things, have leading questions, but let the students just ask them, you know, whatever they want. And so having, you know, a lot of this um, kind of what I would call structured dialogue, where it's not completely free form, you know, but the and 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 the instructor has an idea of the, the you know the concepts that are important to to cover, but really, you know, there's a lot of this interaction where students could 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 ask them more directly, and I think um, based on my personal experience, using the the Zoom format actually becomes a, in a way a little bit more personal because you know your faces are right there assuming you have the video on and you know you do you know you're not sitting in the back of the class so to speak and you can engage uh, with this the instructor and talk in a way kind of face to face um, and I know from a lot of the the meetings I've had it just leads to um, sometimes students will talk that you know I had known before that wouldn't talk uh, in, in the regular classroom, because it would say sit in the back or something like that. And so now during the Zoom meetings, they, they will engage more. Uh, and so I think things are, you know, they're different, uh, but not necessarily worse. Uh, and I think a lot of the principles for making things active, you know, uh, setting up goal-directed questions, goal-directed leading questions, goal-directed activities, um, you know, are all things you could do in the virtual environment. So we know the data to support active learning. And so we're all kind of tasked with this curriculum redesign to include active learning and facilitation. But it's not a marathon, or I'm sorry, it is a marathon, it is not a sprint. Um, so what would be your top three uh, suggestions of where faculty should start um, to start making these changes to their curriculum? Yeah, so I would, you know, first start out with, you know, thinking about the content that you have and um, specifically thinking about the learning objectives uh, and try to be more kind of, try to make them clearer and ideally a bit more practical. And so, you know, if you, um, you know, say you want to teach about some particular physiological systems, such as the, the cardiovascular system, you don't just want that to be the learning objective. You want it to be something like, you know, learn how the um, cardiovascular system responds to challenges uh, associated with, 
you know, uh, hemorrhage or uh, inappropriate vas vasodilation or heart failure or something like that. You want them to be kind of these practical pointed learning objectives where the students are going to like, aha, I want to learn that. Um, and so to make things a little bit more, and so a little less abstract. Uh, along the way of these kind of specific practical, uh, you know, learning objectives, they will learn the general concept of how the, of, about the cardiovascular system. And so I think that this is the um, advantage of giving the students, you know, setting the students' expectations and making the information more practical, uh, practically useful, or at least perceived that way. Uh, and so I think that that's, so if an instructor has not done that already, ideally you would do this for a typical, you know, kind of uh, a, a more traditional course. But uh, I think it's very important, particularly, you know, uh, the active learning approach requires that you do this. Um, and because the, as I said, you know, previously, the more you know, conceptually, the more you know where you want the students, where you want the students to go, in terms of learning, learning objectives, the more active um, you can be and uh, more engaged you can be with students. So, uh, so that's kind of the first thing. Um, next, I would uh, encourage instructors to maybe not do exactly what we did, which was to completely flip the classroom from one semester, one, one year to the next, where we just kind of changed everything. Um, that was ambitious and, had, and it used a lot of resources to do. So not everybody has those resources. Not everybody has a big, you know, we had a tech team to, to work on the technical aspect. We had a bunch of different instructors. We had a bunch of research assistants, all, you know, a team of about 20 people to, to do this that I was a part of. So not everybody can do that. So instead, you can start slowly by um, replacing, uh, telling the students the answers in the traditional format with a set of questions that lead the students to the answers. And so you have a concept you want them to learn. And so instead of just telling them, you, you think of that um, concept from, you know, as the goal, the end point of a bunch of leading questions. And so this will, uh, you, know, the, you know, you might want to first identify maybe some troublesome concepts for the students, because that might be the most uh, fruitful, uh, you know, concept for you to focus on for having these leading questions. And so I think that that's, you can just kind of start to slowly swap out portions of your uh, material with, instead of telling, um, swap it out with some leading questions. And uh, the third thing I think would be important to learn from your students um, and discuss uh, with the students what they, you know, do and do not like, and just be very, um, you know, as I mentioned previously about the issue of, you know, what do you do when a student asks you a question you don't know, uh, I would encourage people to lean into it and just be like, well, yes, I, you know, well, I didn't know that that's a great question. And, you know, make the students more of a, you know, participatory in the learning experience and the evolution of this course. I think being honest with students about that this is uh, a relatively new approach. Um, you know, on the one hand, it can make its students more nervous, be like, why am I participating in this, you know, when the, the instructor doesn't know what they're doing. But on the other hand, they can be like, if, you, if, if they appreciate the fact that instructors are being honest about it and they're trying hard to you know, provide a new and better educational experience. Um, 
And so I think, uh, you know, this is, you know, the more you learn from the students about, you know, just their, their perceptions, um, and the more you can help to kind of affect those perceptions and kind of mitigate, um, you know, kind of, ad, you know, negative perceptions. And also the more you can learn from the students and learn about where these conceptual kind of, uh, you know, roadblocks are and figure out ways to, to, to ask better questions, better leading questions to get students around it. So um, I think that those kind of the clearly defining your learning objectives, starting slowly and learning from your students are important things um, when starting out. Jeremy, thank you for that. I have uh, one question that as, as we were talking and I was thinking of your, your background, um, we, there's been a lot of discussion regarding um, diversity, inclusion and equity and learning and, and teaching in these diverse environments. And I thought, you know, around this time last year, I believe you were in India um, teaching the Tibetan monks um, and you were facilitating active neuroimaging um, uh, sessions uh, to them. Can you talk a little bit about that experience of being in such a diverse uh, teaching environment and doing active learning um, and what that, what that experience was and, and how you did it? Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's many different ways in which that ex experience was um, absolutely fascinating and interesting. Um, so it was, yeah, something that based on my experience with active learning, I was invited to, to go and teach at a um, Tibetan monastery in a Tibetan refugee area in uh, India. And I had, uh, so there was didactic material and there was these active learning sessions that we had. And so I brought some of the active learning uh, sessions that I developed and, you know, you know, was having, um, you know, uh, monastics, you know, navigate the brain to identify different brain regions. Um, so uh, one, you know, there's many different reasons why or many different ways in which it was a different experience, not the least of which is that they spoke Tibetan and I needed translators. And so a lot of the, um, you know, so there, there was this communication issue uh, and um, which was, you know, we, which was fine to work around. You know, I think it worked out well, but it required, um, I found it interesting because it required me to talk relatively slowly and to really be, and, and carefully and so it was a good exercise in kind of conveying information and then waiting for it to be translated and then, you know, continuing again. So it wasn't necessarily a bad experience kind of teaching a, cl uh, a class where, you know, uh, the majority of the students didn't understand uh, your language. So that was an interesting um, aspect. Uh, another aspect was that they were all adults. They were all, you know, in their mid twenties to mid thirties. They're all, you know, training to be monks, um, you know, and, and training to be a, a monk or a nun, you know, takes, you know, uh, 16 years, something like that. And so it's kind of analogous to getting a PhD. And there's a lot of training involved uh, and a lot of intellectual development. And one of the things that the, in order to get, become a, a, a true formal monastic, to become a monk, 
you need to pass these exams. And in recent years, the Dalai Lama has pushed for having neuroscience questions um, and other, other science questions as well, um, like physics, physics, et cetera, you know, uh, as part of their exams to become a monk. So, you know, by definition, um, you know, in order to become a monk, you need to be knowledgeable about the sciences. So I thought that that, that added this kind of um, incentive for the monastics to learn this information um, that honestly, I'm not entirely sure that they would be incentivized independent of these kind of added incentives. Like it was a criteria for them to, you know, achieve their goal. So that was something that was, you know, um, when looking at, we have some data looking at the perceptions from the monastics, like how much do they value learning science? A lot of them, it, it was relatively positive. Like they were motivated to learn science, in this case, neuroscience. Um, but a lot of that I think was motivated by the standards put in place by the Dalai Lama. So um, that, that was one kind of something I had to keep in mind that not all, that some of the monastics might not find this very interesting. And so I had to, um, but that's the case with um, undergraduates or you know, students in the US. Um, so that was something, so that was, you know, an additional kind of component um, to it. Uh, and uh, another one is that, as I said, they were all adults and they, they didn't, but they didn't have like basic eighth grade science education. Uh, so a lot of what I took for granted for their concepts about how to think about science, how to, um, I, I couldn't take for granted. So I had to teach from essentially incredibly talented, they were very smart. Uh, amazing memories. Um, and, you know, but they didn't, there was some basic conceptual information about, uh, say, you know, Cartesian plots, like an XY plot, they didn't understand it as intuitively as uh, a lot of people who have kind of basic eighth grade science education have. So that was an interesting experience to teach extremely basic concepts um, to adults. And so that was a new, another aspect of what made it uh, unique. Um, another aspect is that they were coming from a very, you know, that they had a religious background and they have, um, you know, by definition, strong beliefs about things such as say reincarnation. And they also have beliefs that science could potentially, doesn't necessarily contradict those ideas. And so there's a lot of questions relating to their belief system. Uh, you know, I had one, one nun asked me about, uh, you know, uh, when I was talking about procedural learning and how we learn things automatically and we have, have lots of habits that we form um, from day to day, we tend to do things in the similar way, we tend to brush our teeth in the same way, etc. You know, she was, um, she was relating that to the idea of reincarnation and how we could have habits that are passed on from one life to the next. And she wanted me to comment on this. And so it was very interesting um, to do uh, because I had to try to be sensitive to her perceptions and what she, she believed. And I couldn't outright say that that was not true. Um, I don't think you know, one could say that, but I also was fairly firm that, you know, we don't have evidence that that is the case. And so uh, I try to relate other types of, you know, try to be, you know, somewhat accommodating and that information could be passed from one life to the next as we, you know, from genetic information. But in terms of 
cognitive information, there's no evidence for that. So that was, um, it was an interesting question and interesting dialogue. Um, in all honesty, I'm not sure that the nun believed me, but it, it's something that um, I think, it, you know, my position was not to refute their beliefs. It was to provide a scientific way of thinking about um, these concepts. And so that was my, I had to put on, um, you know, I had to, to think in a different way and to encourage, it encouraged me not to be dismissive of people's beliefs. And so it was a good practice and a kind of extreme example of that. And it's something that I try to incorporate into the way I think about things these days in terms of, you know, people being, having very strong beliefs that don't match with science and trying to understand why they believe this or that um, and try to have, be able to have um, a dialogue with people, uh, you know, who, you know, have very different opinions and different belief system and a different way, a different system of thought. So that was the one kind of final thing is that they, I found a lot of the Tibetan monastics think differently um, and they learn differently. The way they learn is often through the logical argument. So they will, every evening, they will sit outside in a courtyard and debate each other on a variety of topics. And so they will, you know, one example of a debate I witnessed was the starting question was from one of the debaters where they say, uh, you know, there can be no smallest thing. And so that is the concept that they, that is their point. And um, in this case, the person, the, the, the monastic is standing up and the other monastic is sitting down. And so you're, they're standing up in a more kind of dominant position. They make a statement and then clap their hands. And the other person has to refute that and be like, ah, but there can be a smallest thing. There can be an atom. And then, you know, the other person makes a point and then, you know, that there's, there can be something smaller than the atom and et cetera. And they go back and forth and try to incorporate in this specific example, um, concepts from physics. Um, and so, th but this is what they do, uh, you know, and this is how they learn. For the most part, they're not sitting in lectures. They, they have these constant logical dialogues, which is a very fascinating way to learn. And it means debating them is actually quite difficult. Um, and it is a great exercise in um, intellectual achievement to beat a monk in a debate. Uh, and, you know, they do this from a very young age. I witnessed, um, you, know, uh, you know, kind of adolescent nuns debating each other and could, they could get to very advanced arguments. Uh, it's a bit of a competition between them. So, um, you know, I had to come in from like, they're thinking of things in a much more, it, it, in a different way and the, what they understand, they can formulate all the successive arguments to kind of um, to, to support a particular concept. So uh, anyway, I could go kind of on and on about all the different interesting ways um, and interesting aspects of this experience. Well, I mean, it, it just speaks to the fact that when teaching diverse environments and um, that we ourselves can learn a lot and impact the way that, that we continue to practice and, and teach ourselves. And so I thank you for, for sharing that experience. And um, I believe that there was, you were supposed to go back this year, but of course COVID happened. So I, I hope that you get to go back uh, again in the, in the near future. Yeah, that was, um, 
I was going to go back last summer, uh, and it's still, you know, up in the air. Uh, you know, I, I would be surprised if I went back this year, but I'm, I'm hopeful to go back in, in subsequent years. It was a, a, a wonderful experience, and um, I, I feel like I learned a lot more from them than they did from me. So, uh, but I, I still can communicate with them, um, you know, you know, like via Facebook and stuff like that. And there is, you know, the Dalai Lama has been having a lot of these Zoom meetings where he's, he, he you know, is putting a lot of his teachings online. And I think the, the, the monastics are embracing more of this um, kind of virtual environment as is everybody, so. All right, well, wonderful. Well, we are coming to the top of our hour. I thank you very much, uh, Dr. Purcell, for, for joining me today. Um, I, I learn a, a lot every time uh, you and I talk, so thank you. Uh, Jeremy has also prepared some uh, slides uh, with some of uh, the discussion points that we talked about. And so I will post a PDF of his slides uh, with the recording. So thank you so much, everybody. Have a great day.